We went, too, whether it meant flying into the Amazon on a rattletrap Cessna, plying the waters of Lake Titicaca in a traditional reed boat, or jouncing down some of the worst roads in Africa in a mud-spattered Land Rover. If our family travels weren't always comfortable or easy, they were never dull. In Zambia, we once picked up a tall hitchhiker in a red jumpsuit who carried a nine-foot spear. He smelled terrible, and Sarah and I, sharing the back seat with him, secretly held our breath for as long as possible. Another time, when we were camping on an uninhabited island in Africa's Lake Tanganyika, Sarah spotted a cobra slithering toward our open tent. Within seconds, my mom grabbed a nearby shovel and, swinging it like a machete, chopped off the snake's head. Later that same year, as we were crossing the Zambezi River from Zambia to Botswana on a small, jury-rigged ferry, a patrol boat from Rhodesia roared up the river and began circling us like a shark, trying to swamp the ferry's outboard and send us drifting downstream into Rhodesian territory. Much to my dad's dismay, my mom gave the soldiers a defiant, international gesture for kiss my ass, but we made it across safely. Sarah and I assumed all of this was quite normal. Back home in Ann Arbor, we traveled just as widely in our minds, reading book after book about explorers, pioneers, and inventors who helped make history and change the world. In our basement, Sarah and I transformed an old refrigerator box into a spaceship, where we spent many happy hours exploring strange planets in faraway galaxies. I even sacrificed a few corks, the kind with plastic tops, for the cause. Inserted through the cardboard walls of our spacecraft, they made excellent knobs for adjusting the booster rockets. When I was eleven, we moved to England for a year for one of my dad's sabbaticals. We lived in Durham, a small northern cathedral town, in a four-hundred-year-old gatekeeper's cottage overlooking the River Ware. Every morning, Sarah and I would put on our school uniforms and trudge off to the Durham-Johnston Grammar Technical School, a gray Dickensian institution where teachers, or masters as they were called, required us to stand at attention whenever they entered the room and complete our lessons with fountain pens. But if the stern traditionalists at Durham-Johnston were inclined to view Sarah and me as wayward Latter-day Colonials, we took it upon ourselves to excel to such a degree that there would be little doubt that the Yanks, as we were known, had not only won the revolution, but were first in their class, too. And then, in a few horrible moments, my whole life changed. Leaving England, we took a family trip to India. After sharing a fun week aboard a houseboat on a gorgeous lake in Kashmir, my parents hired guides to take us all pony-trekking up into the Himalayas. Crossing a swollen river, Sarah's pony slipped on a rock and threw her into the rushing waters. My dad and two of our guides sprinted in to save her, but the thundering rapids and boulders overwhelmed them. Sarah, along with one of the men who tried to save her, hit the rocks and was swept away. We searched the river for two days as we hiked out, but never found them. She was fourteen. I was devastated beyond comprehension. Sarah had been my best friend, 
and in a single terrible fluke, just a few yards from safety, she had been taken from me forever. Gone were the games, the laughter, the mischievous conspiracies of our childhood, and gone were any illusions that the world was safe, that parents were all-powerful, or that life was fun. I might still have been a kid, but my childhood was over. Already a close family, we pulled together even more. Still, the years of adolescence that followed were an exercise in abject misery, and I struggled through by channeling my grief into a frenetic schedule of study, sports, and music lessons. One of the few bright spots in junior high was building a raft with my best friend, Andrew, out of 126 cardboard milk cartons and several rolls of duct tape. About ten feet long, the boat featured a sweeping prow that resembled a Viking ship, complete with a dragon's head, whose pointed horns were half-pint cartons emptied of their half-and-half. Half. We called our vessel the SS Milky Way, and launched it in the Huron River to a smattering of applause from friends and family. It floated beautifully, and we gave rides all afternoon before bringing it back to Andrew's house. Unfortunately, only a day or so later, our craft began assuming the look and the smell of blue cheese. Only reluctantly, and at the strong insistence of Andrew's dad, did we haul it to the curb for the garbage man. Some years later, after high school, I took a summer job as a hotel groundskeeper on Mackinac Island, a small historic resort in Michigan's Straits of Mackinac at the confluence of Lakes Michigan and Huron. I had first visited the island in third grade and was fascinated by its old colonial fort and the fact that it banned cars altogether. If you wanted to get around on Mackinac, you either walked, rode your bicycle, or climbed aboard a horse-drawn wagon. More than anything, I loved all the boats that jammed its harbor and went there hoping to spend time on the water. Seeing I was young and fit, the head groundskeeper assigned me the task of moving rocks, work that made the prospect of two months on Mackinac seem more like a sentence on Alcatraz. After two days at hard labor, I hatched a plan. I had brought along my violin and convinced the resort's owner to give me a tryout as a violinist in his restaurant. I've played the violin since I was four, I said, concealing my nervousness. I can do more for you making music than I can moving rocks. Something of a wheeler dealer himself, he admired my chutzpah. He also liked the idea of replacing his maitre d's George Winston tapes with some live entertainment. So for the next few days, I moved rocks by day and played violin by night. Then when I complained that my hands could only manage one or the other, the owner shifted me to musical work altogether, and I traded my grubby jeans for a black suit, bow tie, and the easy life of a solo, strolling violinist. The head groundskeeper grumbled at my escape from his rock pile, but I didn't care. My quarry had now become all those romantic couples who tipped so generously for a few songs at tableside. When I was done for the night, I'd walk home and pull the crumpled bills from my pockets, along with the night's haul of corks. Not that I had plans to build the boat of my dreams any time soon, but saving those corks reminded me, somehow, of happier times. By summer's end, when I shipped off the island, I had several hundred. 
The next summer, after my freshman year at Stanford, I returned to Mackinac in style, bringing my family's sailboat, a 13-foot dinghy called the Cyclone. Rather than spend all my tip money on one of the expensive slips at the marina, I chained two cement-filled buckets together, dropped them in the middle of the harbor, and ran a heavy rope all the way up to a grease-jug float on the surface. This functional and economical mooring enabled me to keep the cyclone safely out in the harbor, bobbing amid yachts four and five times its size. The only drawback to this location was that I had to swim out and back every time I wanted to go for a sail, an invigoratingly cold prospect, even in August. The sailing, though, was worth the Arctic swim. Situated in big water, Mackinac gets big winds, big enough to have sunk dozens of ships on nearby shoals. Mindful of any change in weather, I'd cinch my life jacket tight and head out of the harbor, heeling hard and dodging the giant ore freighters that barreled past on their way to and from the iron ports of Lake Superior. I insisted on pushing the boat to its limits, and capsized more than once, but with such a little boat I could ride it fairly easily. Wearing a life jacket and my favorite sailing gloves, I felt invincible, big water or not. Sometimes, if a friend was willing to swim for the mooring, I would sail us both over to Round Island, just across the channel. Round Island was an uninhabited, forested state park, with a sandy cove, a crumbling lighthouse, and, during the hot days of July, sweet, wild raspberries growing near the beach. Even amid the swirling angst of those late adolescent years, the afternoons I spent on Round Island were the epitome